This is Lost in the Groove. And I'm Mike. I'm Dave. We hippies have come together to spark change. So together, we give you our society and culture podcast. So with that, let's get funky and let the intro music play, baby. Alright, so we are back with another Native American nation. Uh, This time around, we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction. We have somebody from the Culture Center that's going to go over about the tribe. They're quite small, so not very well known, but we're here today to shed a light on a tribe that's, I think, originally from California, if I'm not mistaken. And we have Caitlin here that is going to be our guide. So without further ado, Caitlin, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? You're kind of talking a little bit before. We had a little bit of a conversation on the phone, um, uh, I think about over a month ago. But mm-hmm. yeah, just go ahead. Yeah, so um, I'm Caitlin Snodgrass. I'm actually a member of the Chimoyvi Indian tribe. Um, we are a federally recognized tribe in Southern California. Um, we originally were very nomadic. Um, we tended to uh, head all the way out to the Pacific Ocean and then all the way up into uh, Utah and past Las Vegas, what is currently Las Vegas. Um, today, of course, we have a couple reservations here and there because Chimoyvi people were pretty scattered as reservation era policies were enacted. Um, I know that 29 Palms services Chimoyvi and Serrano communities. Uh, to the south of us is Colorado River Indian uh, Colorado River Indian Reservation, which services Chimoyvi, Mojave, Navajo, and Hopi communities. Um, but as far as Chimoyvi in the eastern, southeastern California area, we are pretty much the leading, I guess, reservation and also cultural center. Um, I am the director. I've been director since September of 2021 when the previous director, Bridget Sandate, left. Um, I was originally her assistant, and they promoted me up the chain. Uh, I have a BFA in creative writing. I went to the Institute of American Indian Arts, which had actually inspired me to come back to the reservation and work for the cultural center, um, because I realized that, you know, we're a small tribe, and a lot of the younger generation are pretty out of touch with Chimwevi culture, I think. And I had grown up as one of those kids who was caught between um, you know, all this pressure to learn Chimoyvi culture. And then I actually went to a predominantly white high school where that was sort of seen as kind of weird. You don't want to be the uncool kid. You want to fit in. Um, there were actually a bunch of kids who had kind of asked a lot of questions uh, when I was going to high school because they were so shocked that a Chimoyvi person was going to school with them and that I could read. That was somehow a big thing that one kid had sort of picked on me for. Um, But here uh, doing work in this community, we do want to preserve and encourage our youth to participate in their culture, to not feel ashamed of being Chimoyvi. I feel like in a way, California is one of those states that a lot of Native American tribes, there's not that many. I mean, you mentioned earlier that there was kind of that thing of of scattered. Was that kind of a common thing with Native American tribes on the West Coast? Is that they weren't that much together? They were very scattered? 
Um, I know that specifically for Chimoyvi people, we tended to be very nomadic in that we would travel in small bands. So typically you wouldn't get a huge village site. Um, we tended to stick to family groups. I know that when traditionally when men married into a family, they would follow their wife's family around um, with certain exceptions. Like when we married with other tribes like Mojave and Kuwia, who were more patriarchal than you became a part of them. So there was a lot of um, intertribal uh, marriages and things of that nature. But then we also were very scattered in terms of organization and just in the interest of, you know, being in the middle of the desert, only so many people can be at one site, uh, one spring at a time to ensure that we're not overtaking from these resources and make sure that they're there season after season after season. Um, it was pretty common for a lot of people when they uh, traveled to predominantly hunt rabbit uh, because rabbit is one of those resources that's really easy to replenish itself. So um, we do have texts that describe like large hunts, but those tended to be more ceremonial. Um, and in terms of scattering and organization after colonization, um, we do get a lot of uh, mission bands of Indians where the Spanish came in and they didn't really care for the intertribal politics. They just saw, oh, hey, here's a workforce and decided to Christianize. So out of that, we do get a lot of organization of reservations where you might have two tribes who are considered from the same mission band, or there might be divisions like uh, Colorado River Indian Reservation had originally been Chimoyvi on the California side, Mojave on the Arizona side of the Colorado River. So there is a lot of scattering, um, specifically in the Southwest, of a lot of different tribes. Um, and a lot of reservations sort of spring up out of that. Mike? I was, um, I was uh, briefly doing some research. Uh, forgive me, I didn't introduce myself. Uh, I hope you're well today, Caitlin. Thank you for coming on. Um, it's, it's really... Uh, quite incredible the uh the vast knowledge you have in your uh, in your current position you said you had started in september this is where you want it to be uh mm -hmm. correct that's what you were saying that is correct and you're it sounds like you're doing a great job from uh everything that you're able to uh kind of share with us it's quite detailed the uh the scatter i mean um due to a lot of the movements the um the uh, territorial, you know, aspects of it. At uh, at what point did uh, you actually see like any changes in population? I, from what I've been reading, like the population for this specific tribe is fairly small. Um, has it always been small? And um, what are the current numbers now? So um, to answer that question, it always has been kind of small. I know that our official reorganization and re-recognition date is back in the 1970s. So when we originally started as a reservation, there was you know very little housing here. And that's one of the issues that kind of has limited our numbers here on the reservation today. Um, I believe our numbers are between 1,300 and 1,500 enrolled members, um, which doesn't count account for descendants, people who fall outside of a certain blood quantum. So those numbers tend to be a lot larger than what's reported. 
Um, but currently between 200 and 300 people live on the reservation, um, which is something that we see a boom and bust cycle of. We typically get a lot of people who go to the city either for college or to find a job or there's a lack of housing. So people move away. They have children off the reservation and realize that they want their children to connect with their culture and then come back to the reservation to try and uh, immerse their children back in Chimoyvi culture. And then those kids grow up and they go off to college, move out to the cities. So it's a cycle that we're hoping to remedy in the coming years as we um, develop more housing projects and provide more space for people to come back and live on the reservation. I mean, I couldn't, I, I could imagine, you know, just with the politics and the thing that things that go on in California, it's extremely expensive to buy land anywhere in California. We're talking about like per acre is close to 50 to 85% more expensive than any other state, including Alaska, which is nuts. So how does that apply with the tribe? I mean, I know you guys are trying to build up your land. You're trying to be able to build up, you know, the culture center, get people that are involved, the newer generations. How is the cost of, you know, living-wise, land and all of those affecting the tribe in California specifically? So our main source of economic growth right now is our new casino that we've just built. I believe it was a $5 million project, which includes a hotel, a new restaurant, um, a new bar separate from the restaurant. So there's that's our main um, way of providing for ourselves and being self-sustaining. And of course, that even has its own boom and bust cycle. I actually worked at the casino um, for a while during college to sort of help pay for expenses. So um, when I say this, it's from experience, but we tend to have a lot of snowbirds who tend to come down, vacationers who will either live in Lake Havasu or they have a second house here and they come here to vacation to get away from the snow. And then we also have a spring break boom, typically right around now, maybe in a couple more weeks. But um, when the pandemic hit, a lot of our economics were severely impacted. We just opened a new casino and now due to the pandemic, we're having to shut down. And unfortunately the tribe didn't have a lot of um, planning in place. I don't think any place really did. Um, So we are now coming out of that with a stronger um, economics. You know, a lot of people want to go places. They want to, see these different venues. Um, They want to go to casinos. They want to have a nice lunch just by the water. So we do have that to provide for us. And then some of our programs are also funded through grants. Um, We have a tribal administrator, I believe, who knows a lot about grant writing. So he's been really beneficial in helping departments who might not get all of the funding they need because we have been so severely impacted in finding that funding, um, getting projects started, helping us see these things through to completion. And as far as land and cost go, um, the Chimwebe Indian Reservation is actually held in trust by the federal government. So essentially we aren't paying for the land, but there's an agreement that as long as we continue to exist as the Chimwebe people, we are entitled to this land. This is our home that was taken from us in the 1930s. We had 
7,776 acres that were taken and flooded to create Lake Havasu as we know it today. Um, so, you know, this is our home and the federal government has certain things that they have to recognize when it comes to how a tribe and a reservation is set up. So we're not necessarily going out and buying huge parcels of land. What we're seeking to do is um, more often than not develop what's already here. Um, there's a tract of housing where individual members have um, or they go through the realty department to um, have a parcel of land allotted to them and then they pay a lease to the tribe and then develop a house there. So there's that option but then we also do have a housing department who creates these infrastructure projects and takes a look at you know, what does our housing list look like in comparison to the number of available apartments and houses? What can we build? Where can we develop um, to make sure that we have enough housing for our people? I'm, gonna, I'm actually curious about a couple of things, and you did answer um, uh, one or two of them. So it's it's great that the federal government has stepped in and uh, recognized that um, these uh, parcels of land belong to uh, this tribe and are willing they to always help have you guys belonged. out. Do you, um, when you mentioned the, um, the casino $5 million project, um, when, like when was it built? Was there any, uh, government aid at that time to help build the facility? Uh, as far as I understand, no, but I'm also not uh, the best person to be asking about, um, projects and developments. These are just numbers that I've heard, um, because I do attend council meetings and I do hear these numbers passed around. These are um, more of the publicly available facts, but I believe no, since a lot of federal government projects. So to sort of back up a bit, a lot of casino projects that are handled by tribes, the federal government takes a very hands-off approach and says, that's something you have to take up with the state. So we're a federally recognized nation within a nation. So oftentimes when we want to pass an ordinance, say, we want a noise ordinance passed on the reservation because we're having an issue with noise complaints. That's something that we can do. And if the state of California wants to challenge that, we go into federal court to sort of um, argue our case for, you know, you guys said we could do this um, as long as the federal government doesn't have something that would trump our noise ordinance in this example. Um, we can go ahead and pass that ordinance and make that our policy. Um, but there are certain things that are handled through the state, such as um, liquor licenses, uh, and I believe gambling is also handled through the state. So if we want to have a casino, we have to sit down at the table and we have to talk to the state of California, and we might have to go into rounds of negotiations where the state of California says, well, we want this reflected in the gaming compact that we're going to sign with you, or we want to see this reflected in your policies before we grant you a liquor license. And because that is handled through the state and not the federal government, we have to meet some of the state's compliance in good faith, of course. This, um, is, this is, I'm just like, to be very honest, to me, it just seems like Native Americans don't have any land. It's where America is like, okay, we're going to call this the Chimoyave people. We'll call this the Navajo Nation. Like, we'll call it that. Mm -hmm. But you don't have land. I mean, you have to go through us. It's, and it baffles me because you were here first. 
So this is your land first. And America clearly showed at the very beginning of history, once they settled, became a nation, where they accepted the Native Americans for being in the land. So you accepted them for being here. But then you kept throwing them bullshit treaties, stealing more of their land, to now it's like, is it their land? Just say, is it Native American land or it's Native land? There's a very big difference. And I think the answer a lot of times is no. Um, with certain things, like we've ha we have a site um, on BLM land, and I think there were some talks kicked around about, you know, this is a traditional sacred site. This is a place that needs to be protected. Um, and we've had a lot of talks with BLM and the National Park Service about how they handle these. BLM, of course, being Bureau of Land Management. So when it comes to our sacred sites, if they're not on reservation boundaries, we don't really have access to how those are managed or handled. Um, and there's been a push recently, I believe, to incorporate us, to include us at the table when it comes to how these sites are being managed, how site stewardship is treated. Because some of these sites, if they're not, you know, Yellowstone National Park, if they're not something that turns a profit or is one of America's landmarks, then a lot of times they do suffer from neglect or will say like, hey, you guys need to come out here and repair something to manage something, to handle the offered vehicle issues that we're facing. Because that is a big thing that happens um, in the Mojave Desert is a lot of off-road vehicles will go off-road, they're destroying trails, there's the potential that they could be doing harm to our environment that um, a lot of times just sort of gets hand-waved as, oh, well, they're just driving out in the middle of nowhere, there's nothing out there, what can they possibly hurt? And so um, as cultural center director, I actually handle a lot of our TIPO, NAGPRA, Section 106. Um, so these are things that we're taking more seriously since we're sort of gaining more leeway um, and as I've been cultural director, I've actually petitioned for a lot of um, these Section 106 things to be treated with more severity, because these are not just things that you can go out there and damage and say, oh, it's just some dumb rock. Um, we have some petroglyphs here in the center that were unfortunately taken from one of our sacred sites and then returned to the tribe after that person who had committed this act of theft passed away. And they're... Um, children, their descendants came back to the tribe and said, look, this is what we found just laying in a garage in a spare room somewhere. Do you guys want these back? And of course we said yes. These are parts of our history that a lot of people aren't um, aware that they're out here and then they also don't care that they're being damaged. They see the desert as this empty wasteland to go have fun, to go off-roading, to go hiking, um, and they don't realize that there's a long history that lives here. Mike? Sorry, I was uh, just doing a, a little bit of reading on my, my right-hand side here. Mm -hmm. uh, a little more about, I um, want to know a little bit more about uh, what's going on with uh, the current youth. You had mentioned earlier that it is in the best interest of the tribe to try to get more uh, of the youth involved. Uh, is there any uh, programs that you can speak about that um, 
is currently going on, uh, whether it's trying to reach out to existing members and their children or um, education centers within the uh, within the community. Like, whoa. And what's the current um, I mean, what's the current climate? How, how do these kids feel about uh, having to learn more about their history uh, and a little bit more about yourself, too, when you had um, learned more about it? Um, how did you take it? What was like what was high school like for you um, once um, once you had gotten to a point that you, ha- you were more accepting of your heritage? Um, So to speak on my own personal experience, I didn't actually really get that much into my heritage until I went away to college. Um, I spent a lot of high school, I was kind of bullied in high school because I went to this white high school across the lake in Arizona. And this kid had asked me one time, um, hey, if you're from across the lake, how come you can read? And I looked at him and I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, I didn't know that Indians could read. And I just sort of like had to uh, like, there wasn't anything I could say to that. It was just so ridiculous to me to see this kid who was just, you know, 14, 15 saying, I didn't know Indians could read. And then um, one kid had actually called me a spear chucker in high school, which was something that I had sort of brushed off. And I was like, Oh, nice socks, Brandon. Did your mom buy them for you? Um, But these were experiences that had taught me to sort of internalize a lot of um, shame about my heritage. And especially because a lot of people at first glance, they can't tell that I'm enrolled in the tribe. So when I went to the Institute of American Indian Arts, it's a predominantly Native American college. um, And there were a lot of children who were, or not children, but young adults who were speaking like fluent Diné. They would switch between English and Diné like it was nothing. And I felt, you know, even more shame that I didn't know my own heritage, my own culture. People would sort of ask me because I was the third Chimoyvi student to ever be enrolled there. They were like, well, what's it like being back on that reservation? Um, And it was a completely different experience because here we have a lot of infrastructure that other reservations don't have. Um, I used to sort of uh, compare reservation living with Navajo students who were sitting there and they'd be like, oh yeah, I'm not looking forward to going back for winter break because we're going to have to use the outhouse. And I was like, what do you mean you guys have an outhouse? Or people would see pictures of like dirt roads and they'd say like, oh yeah, that's just like being back home. And I was like, but we have paved streets back on our reservation. So um, in college, it was more important to me to take up a lot of that knowledge and a lot of that learning, especially because I'm the oldest of five children. So I think setting a good example for them, um, six children, actually, oldest of six. So setting a good example for them that, you know, this isn't something to be ashamed of. This is something to be really proud of. This is something that, you know, hundreds of years have tried to wipe out and we're still here. We can still have these classes. We can still learn our native language. We can still teach each other these things. Um, And I think there is a difference between the youth back when I was growing up and now where a lot more parents are seeing that there's a need for their children to be involved in their culture. So we get, you know, children from transitional kindergarten all the way up who are already being immersed in their culture. They're being taught the language at home. Um, We don't have like a fantastic language program at the moment, unfortunately, but that's one of the long-term goals for the center is that, you know, we can be able to speak our language fluently and not always have to rely on English, you know? 
um, because our language does point out certain things about our psychology, how we think about things as a people. Um, and a lot more of the youth, I think, understand that. And they also understand um, within these classes that these are important. Um, I know that in years previous, people have commented, you know, I was teaching these kids about the reservation and none of them knew what a reservation was. So, you know, we're, we're making that progress. We're taking these steps to make sure that our youth know that this is important and they are included in this. They are a part of history and they're going to be the future. It's really, it's really crazy and really incredible that we've seen, we've seen a really incredible shift where more than ever now, people want to be connected and not connected in a way in superficial. I'm talking about people want to connect to who they are. You know, I, I come from, my father was an immigrant. He came from Morocco. And, you know, I connect to my roots. You know, I, I know where I come from. I've, you know, learned the culture. I cook the culture. I know the culture. More than ever, it's not about living in the past. It's about, you know, knowing who you are. Isn't that the most incredible thing? Is your past, your culture, is who you are. It's what made you who you are. You know, without your ancestors, you wouldn't be here right now. Mm. So you have all that history that comes forward. And it's so true. The newer generations, it's it's a whole different realm. Like, everybody wants to, like, connect to who they are, even if it's multiple things. They just want to know all of it. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that we uh, encourage our students. We encourage curiosity. Uh, we actually partner a lot of times with the education center because they handle more of the youth. I know that in years previous, we've done culture club. Um, a lot of these things had to be put on pause because of COVID, but we're opening things back up. We're planning for these classes. We're looking at ways to incorporate a lot more of the youth, but also the parents too. Um, in fact, this year later on, depending on the willow, I'm actually planning to bring the adults in and sit them down and have them just learn how to weave baskets like we would have traditionally. Um, so that when we want to host a class in the spring, it can become a family event. So that way parents already sort of have uh, some knowledge that they can pass on to their children. Like, oh, hey, when you're splitting the willow, do it this way, helping to teach the children and be more included. Amazing. That's great. Um, you know, as uh, time moves forward and children have their own children and it continues on this way, uh, it would be great to continue uh, remembering a lot of these different um, cultures that uh, like time has almost forgotten. Not not quite. We, we have all the all this written data and information. Uh, you had mentioned something earlier that had me curious. You said that. Um, within your own reservation and community, it's, it's further developed. Um, how much development are we talking about? How much has it improved uh, since um, the tribe had moved there um, from what you had commented other, other kids or college students at the time were saying back home, they would have to use outhouses and, and things of that nature. It's, it's, um, cr it's crazy. Like <laughs> it's really crazy. I'm sorry. 
Yeah, and there's a world of difference even between reservations because I know that um, some students had sort of flipped through photography books of, um, you know, photographers going out to the Navajo reservation and taking photographs there of dirt roads, there's no trash collection service. Um, so here we actually have a lot more infrastructure. Um, we started in 1970. I believe we had $100,000 for those 7,000 acres that were taken and flooded. Um, and we started with a campground and a trailer that was the tribal office. Um, so today, the current tribal administration office used to be one part schoolhouse and one part administration that when the previous director, Bridget Sandate, was a child here on the reservation, um, she used to be in the Head Start program. And so they would always be told, you know, hey, you guys have to be quiet. There's people working in the offices. Um, and so from there, we're actually able to have, you know, an entire Head Start building. We have an education center. We have a gymnasium where we host events, um, where a lot of funerals take place. We're in the process of currently developing more. Um, we do have, you know, electricity, uh, indoor plumbing. We do have a trash collection service. Um, and we have one school on the reservation that caters to uh, elementary school. And then they have to go into Needles, California, which is 45 minutes away, about 45 miles, um, for middle and high school. Um, back in my day, they stopped this program. But I used to actually take the ferry boat across to a, a high school in Arizona. And there were some middle schoolers who would go to the Arizona Middle School as well. Um, but I had to be up at six in the morning to be or five thirty in the morning to get ready to go to school because we had to catch the ferry boat by six thirty. It's a fifteen to thirty minute ferry boat ride, and then you know we had to take the bus, which was another thirty minutes or so. Um, wow! Yeah, it was. Yeah, that's quite a travel just to get to middle school. Yeah, it's crazy. Unbelievable. Uh, what's the What's the uh, nearest major city. I mean, it, does that have uh, an effect on how fast things were able to, to get built out and have this much infrastructure? Mm. There's also an issue where um, we're kind of in a weird, confusing location because we're right on the border with Arizona. So sometimes we'll call for, um, you know, a contractor to do some building work. And the, as soon as we say, you know, we're actually in Havasu Lake and not Lake Havasu, They'll say like, oh, I don't have certification in California. I can't help you. And then we go and call some people in California. And sometimes they're not willing to make the drive, depending on where they're located within California, because it is 45 minutes to Needles, California. And even then, that's not entirely um, where all of the services are that you would need. They have a hospital, but there's not necessarily a grocery store there. You have to go to bullhead or kingman or you have to go across the lake and that in itself has its own challenges um it's actually pretty common on the reservation for people to own two cars one for the california side to get you know where you need to go to work to the ferry wherever and then one on the arizona side so that way if you need to go pick up groceries you can drive down to the ferry boat take a 15 20 minute ferry ride and then you have a car so you can drive to the Safeway to whatever shopping center you need to go to to complete your shopping. But um, it's more common for a lot of people to go 
I believe, into Bullhead, which is another 30 minutes after Needles, I want to say. Wow. So about, uh, what is that? That's about 70 miles. Yep. That's, yeah, just, for, that's cool. just for that's gross, quite a bit. Just for groceries. Mm-hmm. And we do have a general store here, but it's um, not always for bulk buying. So if you're a large family, you tend to go to Sam's Club, Safeway, places where you can buy in bulk for larger families. Right. It, that, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it, it's kind of strange to me because, again, like, I don't know how gas prices are affected in the tribe. But, you know, when you're driving that many miles with California gas prices, that can get very expensive. Real stupid. quick. Stupid yeah. expensive. Yep. And we do have, um, like, it's pretty common, at least in my family, where um, Arizona tends to have lower gas prices. And I believe Fort Mojave just built a gas station across from the AMPM where everybody used to stop. So they can offer lower prices because of um, the way that uh, a lot of Native American tribes are exempt from tax taxes certain taxes um so fort mojave would always have the cheaper gas prices across the street from the ampm so typically you have to drive you know an hour out of your way just to go fill up a couple gas tanks or your car that you're using to drive all the way to bullhead or needles or wherever you need to go um so here on the reservation it's also i think our local gas station is about six bucks a gallon. Wow. Even out there, huh? Mm-hmm. That's insane. I mean, um, the, the exemption, the exemptions are nice to have, but even then it, um, we could be talking maybe 50 cents or 60 cents. It's not much when we're, when we're looking at, uh, dramatic premiums of like $6 per gallon. Yeah. Uh, I was curious if you guys had a, um, a station, on the reservation, but even at that price, it's, it seems unfair. Uh, the, the cost of transportation is probably insane too. getting the gas to that station. That's where the, all those premiums probably kick in. I mean, um, like what's going on currently though, uh, any new developments, anything that you'd like to talk about or share with people, anything exciting? Um, yeah. So I mentioned the basketry class. Um, I also have, I actually have today, I'm actually having to cut short my time with you guys, um, a gourd rattle class workshop that I've been doing with some of the youth. Um, And I have to go set up for that class pretty soon. But um, essentially the gourd rattles in Chimoybe tradition are used for our salt song and bird song. So this is a tradition that, you know, salt song was sung at my grandmother's funeral. We had to cut things short due to COVID and the pandemic. But there are some traditions that have just lasted year after year, and Salt Song is one of them. So being able to take the youth on the first step to preparing them to possibly become the future of our Salt Song tradition is something that I've considered to be really important. Um, So today we're sort of finishing those rattles, and that'll be something for these kids to take home and to have pride in knowing that they spent so many hours working on this to clean the gourd to fix the um, handle to the rattle to put in these seeds that they are the ones who did this and they have something to show for it Um, so i'm looking forward to finalizing that class today and essentially telling these kids like look at what you've done look at something that you've made that you can tangibly take home and take some pride in 
that you can show your parents. Um, and a lot of uh, students had a lot of fun in the first class because we were doing the um, cleaning of the gourds. And one of the ways that you clean the gourd is you essentially put um, certain pebbles into the gourd to finish cleaning out all of the um, interior and then polishing it up. So the students, I think, had a lot of fun. You know, it makes a ton of noise. So telling them this is a class where you can be as loud as you want, as long as you're making sure that you're doing everything in the correct order, correct processes. And they had a lot of fun doing it. That's great. It's uh, it's really important for the youth to to stay active and do things and do these types of activities. It's great that you're a part of that. I mean, uh, essentially, you'll uh, as you continue to do projects like this, you'll have a, a dramatic impact on um, on their experience within the reservation as a whole. Um, yeah. Anything else that's interesting that's going on? Um, how did I was curious about this? How did um, how did the pandemic affect you guys? Otherwise, I mean. Um, was there illnesses? Were there were there losses due to the uh, the pandemic? Anything like that? Um, we're pretty isolated, so we've been fortunate that the pandemic has passed over us more than other reservations in our area. I know that um, Colorado River Indian tribes they had sent out because they're also one of the closest hospitals for Indian Health Services. So they had reports that were coming out, you know, every week that me and the previous director at the time were sitting and we were reading through these really fearfully. But for us, some people in our community did get sick, but thankfully we've had, um, I think, fewer deaths than the average thanks to a lot of people seeing what was going on and taking that community mindset where if they were sick, they would be, you know, going to get tested and then they would stay home. They would say, absolutely, we're not coming in. Um, I know that in our household, we did have somebody who was sick. Um, I never caught it because we were so intensive about our quarantine and isolation, isolation procedures um, to, make sure that we're doing what we need to for the community. And I think that's also been the case for our um, vaccination rates too, where people are not saying I'm getting vaccinated for me. They're saying, well, I have two kids who can't get the vaccine yet. So I'm going to get vaccinated for them. Or um, I know in my case, I was buying um, groceries for my grandmother on a pretty consistent basis. So when they were saying, you know, this is the first round of the vaccine, we're going to be doing a mass vaccination. I signed up immediately because I was like, I'm worried about my grandmother. I'm worried about our elders in the community. Um, so, you know, that community mindset has been something that's really got us through this pandemic. Um, people were, you know, buying groceries for each other. We were like, hey, if you need anything, we know that you're sick, but we'll leave it on your doorstep, doorstep for you to collect. Um, just let us know what you need and then providing for each other. You know, I think that's the, uh, the beauty of... Um what has been created on these reservations it's such a, a tightly knit group of people regardless if it's uh hundreds of people or thousands of people it's still very comforting trying to get any of that type of comfort um from major cities is very difficult it's just not that type of mentality uh, no. and, and i think that's i would say one of the more um one of the more beautiful things about the type of communities that uh, we're, you're describing here, mm -hmm. it's uh, everybody knows each other, everybody cares. Um, and uh, when you come out to the major cities, it's really not like that. No. 
you know, I, I do hope that in my lifetime that I would be able to live and see Native, Amer- Native American reservations growing, you know, communities yeah. being more built, and to a time where it's your own country, it's your own land, no United States interference, none of it. And I do believe that we will come to a point where it's going to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. And Something like it may happen, yeah. Yeah. And I look, I mean, I look forward to that. If that happens in my lifetime, I live my life. You know, I can die peacefully. I'm serious. Like, I can personally say I can die per- peacefully. No problem. And I think with a lot of um, current le- legislation and the ways in which we're being invited to some of these conferences with other, you know, federal entities or organizations, there is a push nowadays to include us at the table, not just as oh, we invited one tribe, but, you know, let's get a whole round of comments from a bunch of different tribes as to how we're handling certain policies and procedures. Um, I was on a call the other day where a lot of us were, you know, pushing for more inclusion of our comments of, you know, not just, oh, hey, here's a round of comments. And once that period's up, oh, well, Um, but we were pushing for more inclusivity. And, a lot of entities realize that there is a need for that, that um, they are wanting to include us at the table as an equal partner, as opposed to, oh, you're just these people over here. So we're going to take some comments and call it a day. There's a lot more push to, to have those conversations, which are difficult conversations to have, um, especially as you know, nobody wants to be told you're doing something wrong. But when multiple tribes are speaking out and saying, you know, this is the way that we want to be included. This is what we want reflected in policy and procedure. These are the comments that we're making. To hear people say, I hear you and we're going to do better is something that's so vitally important to our communities. It's great that they want to. Um, It's refreshing. And um, ultimately, this isn't something that happens overnight, right? It's going to take a lot of time and um, it, it is also very vital that um, the varying different tribes are speaking up, setting the expectation uh, for centuries, right? It's just been one-sided. Uh, here's an opportunity to take um, a, a step forward and, and try to uh, at least be heard and make some demands of your own. It's um, yeah. it's, it's rightfully due. Yeah, I, I you know... What can I say? I mean, this has been, this has absolutely been incredible. I, we really appreciate you coming on and talking about your people, talking about how the tribe is and what's been going on. It's so incredible hearing from the Native American perspective, you know, hearing it from the other side and the side that's just yearning for we are a nation. We are striving to grow our people for the youth. You know, this is the whole important thing is the youth. Mm-hmm. And continuing something that is so important, so important for history, so important for culture, and just important in general. Yeah, I think um, I think Caitlin made a uh, a really good point earlier that um, the with everything that has happened over a course of hundreds of years to many of these tribes, I mean, you guys are still around and still surviving and it 
will come to a point where you can begin to grow again, grow your numbers and um, be able to take back a part of history that uh, very, you know, very few people truly know like what happened. We have the written, we have a lot of the written history, but um, with conversations like this one, and we strive to have meaningful ones on the podcast, it's, uh, I, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time uh, Dave and I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. All right. Well, see you guys in the next one. All right, guys, we have reached that time in our podcast. This has been great. It has been fun, and we got lost in the groove. So stay tuned. Every Tuesday, be sure to check out a new episode of Lost in the Groove premieres about 2 a.m. in the morning and our other channels Sham Bam with Mike and Dave which is our Patreon podcast and our extra special The Shindig Variety Show our YouTube podcast links will be down in the description box so you can vote for what topic we cover next season and what other kind of content or new ideas and stuff we have to offer Thank you guys so much for watching. Catch you guys in the next one. Peace.